the foundation was co-commissioned by the IMA with Chisholm Gallery in London and Spike Island in Bristol and the CAG in Vancouver. And um, we still have a book coming out in a couple of weeks' time, but I will hand it over to Patrick who will introduce the project and tease out some of the threads and how they relate to his practice. And then after that introduction, which will be about 30, 40 minutes, Johan and I will jump back up here and ask some questions to try to open it up a bit further and then open it up to everyone here to ask questions as well. So welcome, Patrick, and thanks so thanks. much. Thanks, Aileen. Um, I have this microphone on, so hopefully everyone can hear me okay. Um, I also can't see anyone, so if I'm like doing this at you, that's why. Um, if anyone who's sat at the back wants to sit on the felt, feel free also, if you're, you know, able, don't be shy. Um, yeah, thanks Aileen, thanks everyone for coming. Um, so I'm going to... I'm going to talk for a little while, and I mostly want to talk about the foundation, um, but I'm kind of aware that it's useful to lay a little groundwork before I do that, and so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about previous projects, but I'm not going to show any images or um, get too deep into them. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to, to kind of explain why certain, um, certain projects are worth talking about. Um, yeah, so I, um, uh, I'm an artist, I'm from the UK, uh, was living in London for the past sort of eight or nine years, um, and have just recently moved to LA uh, during the course of working on this project. Um, generally I, I sort of say that my practice, uh, is centered around performance and video. Um, and there's often a lot of writing involved and, and, and often publishing. But one of the key aspects is that it's, it's frequently collaborative in some way. Um, and a way that I used to frame my practice a lot more um, was, was to say that I was interested in moments historically when a sort of resistance flourished to um, capitalism or industrialization, um, however briefly or however maligned, um, I was kind of interested in, um, yeah, these moments of collective working um, or alternative ways of living, um, yeah, that, that flourished or, or that began to establish some sort of resistance. And um, I was really always interested in a kind of performances research um, that, that sort of like living, living through a set of ideas or performing through a set of ideas or being very physically oriented was just as valuable as um, the more familiar academic models, whether it's sitting around a table and discussing something or, or reading something alone or researching and things like that. And in my work, I was often seeking to sort of fold these processes in on themselves. Um, so, um, yeah, like some, maybe it's useful to give an example of that. Like an early work uh, was called The Nudist in Two Parts and looked a lot at 
um, the history of nudism in Europe. And um, something that we'll kind of come back to is this, this notion of um, when freedom um, is sort of up against a certain amount of conservatism or uh, trying to establish where this fine line is between um, a sort of liberatory politics that is potentially also um, constricting or conservative or there is this sort of fine line. And so I was interested historically in thinking about how in nudism you had a sort of generation of young people who were rejecting their parents' generation as industrialists. And um, in doing this sort of wanted to rekindle this, this like naked back to the land um, natural idea um, of social relations and, and organization and leisure time and things like that. And this in Europe was, you know, very quickly directed into a national, nationalist socialist um, kind of agenda and very quickly and explicitly you have this degree of um, conservatism around, around what the body is and what the ideal body looks like. And um, so on the one hand, there was this sort of um, historical narrative, um, a kind of, um, yeah, like a very methodical research path. Um, but something in my work that I, that I was sort of talking about was this thing of, of doing. So my initial response would be to, to get naked with people and to, and to try and start to engage what nudism was about, but to do it and to think of um, doing and feeling and bodies and um, acting things out and performing them um, and experiencing them as having value and having, and having purchase and being an important part of the process. Um, you know, and I think this relationship to trying to um, sort of push and, and, and fight for and reassert these, these um, maligned experience, experiential methods was kind of often in line with the things that I was interested in researching. Um, and often dismissed, I think, for kind of, whether they're like hippie-ish activities or um, seen as frivolous or something like that. And so, you know, one example of that might be some work for a while I was making that was researching the free festival movement in the UK. You know, and on the, and on the one hand, the free festival movement was a kind of like a bunch of cr crusty hippie dropouts that drove around the UK finding fields where they could have giant raves. Um, and it was seen as being very hedonistic and, um, yeah, like crusty, bad, hippie, pointless sort of thing. But, you know, the, what you have going on at the same time is a very specific political climate that leads to the free festival movement. You have Thatcher's Britain, um, you have the erosion of the commons in terms of free land and, and rights to roam in the UK. And then you have this rampant privatization that's going on. Um, you also have increasing, um, uh, increasing police powers. And so the police really were brutally stamping out this free festival movement. So on the one hand, while you have this, um, yeah, this sort of frivolous hippie movement, it's actually very telling for what's going on socially, economically, politically. Um, 
And so I was interested in sort of tr trying to like reinvest in some of those um, methodologies and some of those ways of thinking. And you know, it's like funny. I just I, I, it makes me think of I once had a curator be like, "Oh, it's really um, admirable that you're not afraid of seeming like a hippie." And I just, it, it sort of struck me as funny that that's in some ways it, it sort of sums up some of the um, interests that I had. Um, you know, I worked a lot with um, meditation for a while, trying to, trying to sort of process and think through new age ideas and methodologies. And again, it's this relationship to privatization and, um, and a, a sort of individualistic um, onset of capitalism, yet also then trying to understand where certain new age thinking or, or histories of the new age movement might be useful um, or, or, or offer us something. Um, so, um, something that was also implicit to these projects was a resistance to soul authorship. Um, um, you know, I was always interested in um, working with a group and seeing that as a, as a way to, to kind of push against um, some of these assumptions about the artist as sole author, the artist as a genius or a, a sort of special figure. Um, and I think in some ways it was a reaction to having studied at Goldsmiths and um, graduated and kind of, you know, you, you're then trying to establish yourself as an artist and it always felt like what was offered to me was have a personal brand and function in the market and be um, an entrepreneur and things like that. And so, again, it's, it, that, a resistance and a pushing back against that gets folded back into this thing of, well, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit around naked with a group of people and we're going to touch each other and meditate and talk about that. And it sounds ridiculous, but I'm going to reassert why it's important and why it's politically has purchase and why there is a, a kind of um, there there is a radical potential worth salvaging in that process. Um, as 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 sort of my practice developed and time went on, I, I think I um, things became a little broader. Um, I think a turning point in some ways was um, a piece that I did at the Tanks in Tate, in the Tate Modern in London. Uh, in, at the end of 2012, and the tanks were or are the um, Tate's kind of performance spaces as they begin to collect performance and as they begin to invest more and more in presenting performance in the gallery, they built these sort of large subterranean performance spaces. Um, at that point, I'd begun to think a lot about dance whereas a, a physicality had always been present in my work, um, I suppose I was trying to hone in somewhat on, on what dance could do. Um, and whereas in my practice, and this will sort of come up a bit in the workshop on Saturday, I had often sort of magpie borrowed things from theatre, especially political theatre, um, and kind of like physical theatre and potentially um, political physical theatre. So like um, 
the, the prime example being Augusto Boal, a theatre director who used these very participative exercises and games um, for groups of people to sort of analyse power and, and try and understand hierarchy and control and um, the ways that we control each other and things like that. Produce, although produced in a very specific context, um, Augusto Boal always wrote his um, choreographies as like uh, instructional. His main, his most famous book is Games for Actors and Non-Actors. Um, so, you know, I was interested in using these formats again. It's like trying to push this sense of I'm not doing anything original or there is no, um, this is a model. Like I was interested in models for, models for change, models for enactment, models for ways of people working together. Um, Steve Paxton and contact improvisation was always of great interest to me in how Steve Paxton developed a, a choreography and kind of just let it go. You know, it's like he developed this choreography that was designed to mean that anyone of any level could dance it as well as anyone else. No matter what size or shape or how strong you were or how fit you were, this dance form is meant to be able to be done. And rather than really sort of hone in and make it his, like Steve Paxton's contact improvisation, he kind of just relinquished it and let it out into the world. So these, these ways of generating performance had been interesting to me, but um, like I say, I began to want to hone in more on um, more traditional forms of dance and to see, I mean, I, for me, I was like, I had this attraction to dance, so why not push into it and, and feel it out more? And so um, when it came to developing this piece for the tanks at Tate Modern, um, this work that was titled Chewing Gum for the Social Body, um, I began to think a lot about improvised dance. Um, I started taking ballet classes and Cunningham classes, um, which is a sort of hybridized form of contemporary dance that uses a lot from ballet, but also a lot from um, more contemporary dance. And, um, and, and a lot about improvised dancing and trying to understand um, Trying to understand, on the one hand, um, what was offered in terms of a physical freedom by learning to dance, um, how you could maybe simultaneously have an experience that was very disciplined and very um, particular and precise, and to try and understand what, what potential there was in there for freedom. Um, and with improvised dance, um, or like forms of improvisation within dance, I was really trying to understand and trying to think through and, and feel out um, this very fine line with improvised dance where on the one hand, it's technically the most free. You're kind of just doing whatever you want in theory, yet it's sort of the most alert that you have to be or the most tuned in to um, a moment and another group of people and a scenario and what's going on in the room. And so like I was saying earlier, you have this real knife edge between discipline and freedom or um, a sort of um, an improvisation and a um, precision. Um, and so Chewing Gum for the Social Body was a 40-minute improvised dance piece um, for the tanks at Tate Modern. And 
really like working with the same group of people for a number of weeks to try and develop this improvised choreography and try to um, really hone in on the experience of knowledge circulating amongst a group of people. Um, and by knowledge, I mean affect and physicality and understanding and um, as much as a, a sort of verbal or um, knowledge-based knowledge, knowledge as we know it, knowledge as we think of it. Um, and to try and really test the relationship with an audience in that process, um, how our expectations of a performer are potentially based around um, expecting them to have knowledge that they impart onto you and an audience is passive and a performer is active and the performer knows what they're doing whereas the, the audience have no expectation. Um, a sort of offshoot of this work was making these smaller performances called Mental Effort Before Action where a group of dancers would dance a score that they had no knowledge of how to read and the score was distributed amongst the audience and at the beginning of the piece we would say okay with this you know we would introduce ourselves and say this is our third time dancing this score it's the first time we've done it publicly um, none of us have any knowledge of how to read this score um, with chewing gum for the social body there was a, a sense of um, yeah, testing this, testing this boundary with an audience of what happens when a group of people appear to not know what they're doing for 40 minutes. Um, and uh, there was a sort of spoken narrative to the piece. Um, I would sort of pick up pages from the ground randomly and begin to kind of collage a narrative. But um, And they really swung all over the place in terms of a relationship to discipline and social control and, and the body in relation to disciplining structures. Um, to give an example, something I came across doing some research once that I was really interested or that I really liked um, was that often in language schools in the UK, um, as a sort of written exercise, um, you're encouraged to, if you're say that you're learning English, you're encouraged to write a description of visiting a large art museum, often the Tate Modern. Um, and there were, I sort of came across a lot of these written descriptions of people describing um, going to the Tate Modern and the experience of being um, overwhelmed or uh, kind of amazed by the number of objects in the room. And um, uh, I sort of also read out narratives relating to recent changes in policing in the UK in terms of protest and, and sort of social movements requiring a pre-planned route. So nowadays in, in the UK, and this was brought in by New Labour, um, to plan a protest you have to give a very detailed description of the route that you're going to take. So you have your A to B um, plan. And that has to be vetted by the police and passed by the police. And only once that's been agreed to is the protest legal. And the minute the protest deviates from that A to B route is the moment that a protest becomes illegal. Um, and what's often used... I mean, you have to be aware that I was making this in the context of us hosting the Olympics in 2012. So this was very kind of on my mind. 
and on everyone's mind. But the police were also then beginning to use what were called iron horses. And they were essentially large uh, metal temporary walls that, you know, say you guys were a protest and I was a police officer and you're all coming this way towards me and it's not the route we've agreed on. The iron horse was a very quick wall that could be put up that would run across. So it, generally it would be like attached to one wall on the side of the road and just laid out until it hit the other side of the road. And it was literally, you know, would literally stop people in their tracks. Uh, and invariably they would then be kettled by the police. So the kettle would, the police would form a line of um, their own bodies and block you in and hold you for maybe eight hours until everyone's too tired and too hungry and too desperate to keep protesting. Um, so these kind of really varying narratives were being read out while a, a group of dancers were um, improvising. Um, and I sort of think of that as, as, as being a work that really turned this corner in terms of trying to think about choreography, um, improvisation and discipline, this sense of trying to grapple with um, a kind of tension between something being fixed and something being fluid and how they how the line sort of pushes back and forth against each other. Um, and something that's maybe also worth talking about is a foregrounding of my own body. Um, frequently a foregrounding of my identity, that being a queer, transgender identity, um, one that I would sort of describe as non-binary. And starting to maybe bring this into the foreground of the work I was making. I think prior to that, I would have always described my work as very queer, but it was always about queering the, the methods of production and trying to queer, in whatever way, how the work was made. Um, you know, which I would argue is still there, but at a certain, you know, at this point, at the end of 2012 or something, um, I began to position myself a lot more in there. Um, so, around, yeah, so at the, it was in 2012, in the run-up to the piece at the tanks, that I first visited the foundation, which, oh, it was there a minute ago. And, um, so it's in LA, it's in Echo Park in Los Angeles, and um, a friend of mine recommended that I go visit the foundation and you know in some ways it was like well yeah this is a sort of it's an important archive in relation to queer history um, but I went there totally anticipating a, a, like a typical archive a typical archive being a kind of concrete modernist building um, there being a receptionist with white gloves and an archivist and things being very particular um, and actually what I found when I got there was that this very normal kind of, I don't know what you call it, like domestic street, it's just houses on the street. And um, the front is all overgrown. And I like ring the doorbell and go in. And it's just this, it's this three-story clapboard house, like very typical for LA and I guess similar to here. Just like the wooden slats and all of that. And there's like, a couple of guys sat on the porch, maybe one, one or two guys, looking pretty like Tom of Finlandy, um, smoking on the porch, and Dirk, who you see in the film, comes out, 
And, it, and to me, it's just like, oh, hey, come in. Like, why are, you, why are you here? What are you doing here? Like, you know, what's going on? And I was like, oh, you know, we, we organized to come for a tour of the archive. And they were like, oh, great, great. Yeah, come in, come in. Um, and we go in, and it's, it's immediately apparent that it's a house um, and that people live here. We like go into the kitchen and people are hanging out drinking iced tea. It's like summer in LA. And um, Dirk and then Sharp gave me a tour of the house, or gave us a tour of the house. And, um, you know, we were shown the archive and the offices, but we were also shown their bedrooms and the bathroom and the kitchen. And then Dirk, I think, took us down into the dungeon that you see later on in the film then out into these sprawling gardens that they have that um, are like a pleasure garden. There's sort of shackles and Dirk showed us this urinal that you can piss into and the piss comes out further down the garden as a shower. Um, and what, what I was sort of immediately attracted to in the house was not knowing who worked there and who lived there. Um, who was an artist and who was a model and who was just hanging around. I sort of really loved that certain rooms in the house had clearly just been domestic spaces and had been converted into archive rooms. You know, often quite simply, just some blackout blinds and some, you know, plan chests. You see the office in the film. Um, the main body of the archive sits in a storage unit that's in the driveway. Um, and Tom's bedroom, which you see in the video, is, is preserved at the top of the house. And so Dirk explained to me how um, him and a bunch of guys had bought the house in the 70s, essentially as a commune. And at this point, I'm like realizing why my friend recommended that I go visit. Um, but they had bought the house in the 70s, it was like, I remember Dirk saying, oh, you know, it was me and the, the, my lover and my ex and his lover, and, you know, we're kind of all mixing it up. And um, at that time, Echo Park was like the, the center of the gay leather scene in um, LA. And in the late 70s, Tom came from Finland to America, and he came to LA. Um, you know, Tom had, by that point, had been, had had quite a long career already. Um, predominantly like a pornographer doing physique pictorial. Um, his images being kind of bootlegged and passed around, but already having that distinctive style of guys in uniforms and soldiers and officers. Um, Something I would come to learn was that he was in the Finnish army, I think in his late teens in the Second World War, when Finland was occupied by the Nazis. Um, and his earliest sexual experiences were with German soldiers. Um, you know, and then he spends the rest of his life drawing these intense kind of leather officers, military uniforms, things like that. But by this point in the late 70s, he was quite well known. And, you know, Dirk and that whole community in LA knew of Tom's work. And he was already this kind of mythical figure within their community. Um, and Tom was essentially going where his work was wanted. Um, I think he was getting a lot more traction in the States than he was in Europe. 
And there were people in America that wanted him, wanted to bring him over. So Bob Miser, who ran AMG, which is a, I don't even know how you describe AMG, but they made these somewhat kind of pornographic videos. Um, the guys in LA, Mapplethorpe, Robert Mapplethorpe was a fan and wanted to bring Tom over and organize a gallery show in New York. He was the first person to organize a gallery exhibition of Tom of Finland's work. Um, so you have these people being like, come, come here, come to America. And so, yeah, Tom, Tom followed where his work was popular. And he ended up staying with the guys in the house in LA. Um, from that moment on, Dirk becomes his lover and his muse and one of his models. Tom lives on and off between LA and Helsinki, but mostly in this house in LA. And, um, you know, in the, you hear Dirk say in the 80s, he decided to help him out. Um, Tom was obviously getting older and there was a sense of needing to begin to archive his work and begin to treat it like the artwork that they all saw it as being. So like no more bootlegs, no more under the table pornography. It needs to be seen as legitimate artwork. Um, anyway, so I have this visit with them in 2012 and um, I'm, I'm kind of just hooked immediately. Um, I think in myself there was a certain aspect going on of really recognizing that the degree to which I was welcomed into the foundation um, was based on a certain amount of, of maleness or presenting male or being able to sort of identify like a gay male thing. At the same time I'm, you know, I'm sort of trying to deal with my own identity stuff going on. Um, I had a, a kind of mentor who was an older gay male artist and um, our conversations had started to get really kind of, you know, like this. And something that was really apparent about that was that, um, and something, you know, that was spoken about was that he kind of took this position of being like, you, you to me, you have a responsibility um, as a gay man. You, my generation, we all died, so you have a responsibility to carry the torch. And, um, you know, you are the next generation, so you need to um, be aware of that, take it seriously, you know, carry the family name kind of thing. Whereas I'm sat there and I'm saying, I don't think I'm a man. I don't, I don't mean, I don't really know. And um, that's where the line from the video comes in, where he says, well, don't worry, you'll, you'll grow into it you know, you'll settle into being a man. Stop worrying about it. Um, whereas for me, I was like, that's definitely not the case. Um, so going to the foundation, I was really, this was playing in my mind and I was trying to understand what is my relationship to this space? What, when I visit there and when I clearly am compelled to have some sort of relationship with this community and with this archive, what is at stake? and what are the conditions of um, entering that space? And, you know, do I see myself as an inheritor of this legacy or do I see myself as the child of, a, of this movement? Um, and, you know, if I'm, in, if I'm the inheritor, what are my responsibilities? If I'm the child, what are those responsibilities? If I'm just a fan of this stuff, what are, what are the conditions to that position and which one do we take and how do we understand where we fit into, fit into it? 
Um, keep, someone, is anyone keeping time? Because I have no idea. No. But Phil, because <laughs> we can jump into questions whenever. Yeah, maybe in five minutes. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I went away and began to try and figure out making a video work. And I always try and stress with the foundation. It would have been really easy to go in and make a documentary or, you know, like the, the people that live there are, are incredibly charismatic and the story is incredibly interesting and the house is beautiful and, you know, someone could make an amazing documentary about the whole thing, but, you know, I was, on the one hand, I was happy to be like, that's not me, that's not what I do, but on the other hand, I was thinking, well, I'm skeptical of this form and I'm skeptical of documentary and that's something to push against. But in the time that it, it took, you know, I was working on this over a number of years. It wasn't until 2013, the end of 2013, that the commission between the four different institutions began to come together. I didn't start filming at the foundation until early 2014. So a couple of years since my first visit has passed already. Um, yeah, I began to develop this, um, this sort of theatrical um, perspective on the work and began to try and understand foregrounding choreography um, and creating this, this alternative space or this um, other register to, to go alongside this more like documentary footage. Um, and these themes coming up about what is legitimate and what is illegitimate in terms of identity, in terms of how a space is used, in terms of a literal organization of an institution. Um, how is the body akin to an archive? How does this archive hold a body of work? Um, how does care function? Um, you know, physically between two bodies, three bodies, a room full of people. And I'm, and I'm hoping that it's big, you know, that the threads of what I was talking about at the beginning is you, they get pulled into it. You know what, what happens when a group of a group of people are in a room together physically, um, and um, yeah, and how does care function? How do we look after each other? How do we look after a body of work, literal bodies, the body of a community? Um, and, um, and a space. I think this is probably the first time I've made material so central. Um, you know, I've always had these works that are about the kind of equilibrium of, of collectives or collaborative moments or communes, and I've sort of always functioned in being part of that equilibrium, but this is the first time where rooms matter and literal materials matter, whether it's paper or wooden walls or the leather of clothing. They become these um, nodes of social relation. Um, yeah, maybe this is a useful time to jump into questions because I can elaborate more. Guys, come into the spotlight. Yeah, come into the spotlight. <laughs> um, well, we both I'm probably have really, yeah, we're probably <laughs> really. Um, no, but I think it's kind of amazing you alien mentioned in the introduction <clears throat> that we met five years ago in. Banff in the Rocky Mountains, but we almost didn't meet because you were meant to go on a residency with A.A. A. Bronson, right, so right, right. a very kind of prominent um, Canadian artist who has been foregrounding kind of what 
um, collaborative work, uh, really stressing queerness and all of that. But he, you know, he was running this school for young shamans, and you, I think you and part of the people on our residency um, were going to go on that, and then that got cancelled because it was too. It was a bit like Stuart Ringhold for the thing. Kind of, it's not everybody's cup of tea, and people at this residency got a bit of uh, cold feet. So you ended up with this. <clears throat> downgraded to this like amazing <laughs> no but this is the thing the amazing what seemed like you know you had to go on this other residency with Olivia Plunder you know phenomenal uh, British artist but I think in some way it was so interesting because you would have had such kind of this experience that you had with the Tom of Finland Foundation with A.A. Mm -hmm. Bronson he's very uh, famous for butt massages and kind of very kind of male, very kind of touchy-feely body, yeah. kind of um, masculinity. And I think the residence, it was only open to men. Uh, right. And yeah, I think yeah. kind of going into Olivia's residency, which had a mix of people, I think in a way, it was kind of really interesting because, yeah, and you subsequently ended up working with Olivia a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think, mm -hmm. but what struck me the most, and from the moment we met, I feel like the biggest question was really like, well, if art and life kind of are intermingled, how can we then create art that makes life livable and mm -hmm. vice versa? Mm -hmm. This kind of thing of if categories are collapsed, how can, but how do we not make art that also kind of ruins our lives? You know, how can we find a balance between life and art? That's mm -hmm. really, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something that's in some way, I feel like it's been also kind of an underlying um, both in your life and in your art, kind of question of how, you know, not to just to make things, but how to make those things, you know, livable in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's... Yeah, I mean, that's probably why... Probably why, you know, in earlier works, I was going to these very historically pinpointable moments. Mm. Um, you know, and, and then in this context, going to the foundation itself and, and um, you know, spending, spending months living and being in that space with them. But I've never, um, I don't think I've ever made a work that foregrounds, like, my life, if you know, if you know what I mean. Like, I, but you're always present in your work, which is the... Yeah, and it's always about how do we live together yeah. and how do we collaborate and how do we... I mean, I feel like in some ways there's a slight, like I have often gone back to theatricality. Um, and this doesn't really answer your question, but it maybe speaks to my tendencies. But there's always this sense of like provisional theater and that these questions of, of living together and stuff like that, I've always gone to through like a theatrical moment or um, foregrounding performance somehow. And, Maybe that's because the question you're, you're asking is the same question that I have, and I don't know the answer. <laughs> yeah. And to sort of go into this, like, um, let's create this, this, this temporary theatrical moment. Yes, we're performing, but we're also living. And, and, it, and the, that's where the lines get blurred in a productive way. Um, rather than, this is crass, but like, rather than how is my bedroom a gallery? Or, you know, those more sort of like, um, recognizable ways that I think people have tried to deal with that messiness. I wonder, um, you spoke a bit about not uh, feeling that sense of inheritance or that 
that you could represent the kind of gay male identity that is represented and protected and celebrated through the foundation, but are there artists or thinkers who put forward for you other models that are more interesting in terms of gender identities? Are there models out there? Um, I, I mean, in a way, like, I feel, in a way, I feel like even though it's a million miles away from how I feel, I, my, my, my brain is still constantly processing Tom of Finland's drawings, you know, and it, there's a, um, there's a, there's like a, a crazy radicality and, and, and sense of gender fuck going on um, in these, in these hyper-hyper-masculine to the point where they stop being um, recognizable images of masculinity or something. Um, and it's something I still like mull over in my head constantly. Um, you know, it, it, although I'm not really interested in their thesis perhaps there's part of me that's like it's almost accelerationist like it's mm. it's going so far into masculinity that it destroys it completely um, and it's also interesting to me at this point that it's not um, for lack of a better word like mainstream gay men that are hanging out at the foundation mm. like Tom of Finn's drawings still have a, a huge amount of currency just within queer culture generally um, but it's almost I don't know I, I don't, it's almost gone through the other side and now it's like a bunch of fucking weirdos that hang out at the foundation. Yeah, in theory, they're, they're all being drawn around the, the most classic image of masculinity. Um, but it's a very queer group of younger people that go to the house. Um, so, you know, and I, so I find that and I think fascinating. In, I mean, <clears throat> in your work, I think we... Well, I see the lesson of like the 60s, kind of this flower power, total freedom, you know, that completely failed. Mm -hmm. And it failed because there was, there was no tension between discipline and freedom. Mm -hmm. It was like the idea of we just let everybody run around naked, there mm -hmm. will be no wars and everything will be fine. Yeah. But of course, what happened was the dope people ran around naked for two years and then got on a suit and then screwed us all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are the people, the baby boomers that still screw us your parents. Um, and I mean, basically, that's kind of the thing. And it's like what I see with you when you talk about theater and score and performance is that kind of negotiation between discipline and freedom, mm -hmm. between having a structure and having some sort of freedom and agency within that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's this sense of like, and this is potentially more in the recent works than the, than the older stuff I was talking about, but this feeling of like, the of my interest shifting away from like culture and counterculture or institution and anti-institution to this much more kind of um, constitutional idea of how, how, do I, how am I constituted by the institution and how do I constitute it myself and um, I don't know, that's, that it's like this sort of quite blobby term um, but yeah, it sort of stops being about this, this, these, these opposites or these. Yeah, I think you've spoken um, with us quite interestingly about how, though it is a, in the house, it is about a kind of structure, 
in which another way of living together and thinking about the world can transpire, that actually it's evolved quite a lot over time and that the users help to establish what it is. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could talk mm -hmm. a little bit about yeah. how that um, works. I mean, in the, so in the book that's coming out soon, there's a, an interview with Sharp, who um, I think you see him in just a second. He comes in and asks if we're filming. Um, oh, he was just there. <laughs> Um, uh, and in this interview, I'm sort of saying to him, like, why do you think people come here? And um, what do you think people get out of it? And are these images educational? Are they radical? Are they a document of a culture? And he's sort of, you know, sort of feeling his way through these questions and stuff. But um, he ends up using this phrase that I really love that kind of refers to this constitutional idea where he says, the visitors are the vital nutrients to the house. Um, and he talks a lot about needing their eyes to, to kind of keep his own eyes fresh on the um, collection. Um, I think, for, you know, something that I thought about a lot early on in this project was what happens when Dirk and I are stood next to each other and we're looking at the exact same drawing, but it, it, it means something completely differently. Like Tom's work, having traveled through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, it's insane how the um, social and economic context that that work traveled in changed so much, um, in part in relating owing to the foundation, from their move from it, like away from pornography and into galleries, into like postage stamps and greeting cards and things like that, which, you know, like is kind of, refers a little bit, I think, to what Joanne's pointing out about baby boomers. Um, but, um, oh, now I've lost my train of thought. But yeah. I, wonder, I wonder if Dirk was for Tom the same. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? If Dirk gave Tom a fresh eyes on his own work as well, you talk about this kind of generational yeah. intervention in the materials of the previous generation. Yeah, yeah probably. I mean, you know, again, Dirk says in the film, we took him out and we kept him young. Um, I, you know, I don't actually know well enough how, yeah. what, what impact the younger guys had on Tom's work. I mean, I know, for instance, that like, um, you know, pre-HIV and AIDS, there was never condoms in Tom's drawing. And um, I think he, this has just been told to me anecdotally, but he was really, Distressed at the at the kind of implication that his drawings um, made like unprotected sex seem more exotic and appealing, and so he started drawing condom advertisements and um, kind of incorporating that into his work a lot more. Um, I don't know. There are these interesting little narratives that you can pull out of it. You can look at a very distinct difference in terms of race in his commercial work and his private work. Um, his the, the works that he just drew for himself were much more diverse. Everything that was commissioned commercially was always white, and always that was something people specified that they wanted. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, by, by virtue of, of him having this very long career, you, you can kind of pull out these threads, I suppose. Maybe you just open <clears throat> for some questions. Maybe you just project or stand up. Yeah, shout, shout any questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, one other question. Um, you talked quite 
few things going on in that question. Um, no, it's fine. It's good. The, something I was very aware of in terms of shooting the house itself. Um, um, so on the one hand, I kind of had this rule to myself where I was like, no slow drifting camera. Um, there'll be no filming the archive, how we generally see archives in artist film. Um, Everything was to have a, a kind of locked off, fixed perspective, and they were to be kind of portraits of each of the rooms. Um, but something that features that I hoped would reflect somewhat my experience of being at the foundation is this like constant context. Constantly people walking around behind you and chipping in with comments and talking, and it, that deviates from this typical experience of an archive. Generally, the archivist gets out the thing you're allowed to look at, puts it on the table or whatever, and you're left to contemplate it. In this concept, it's a constant dialogue um, and a constant negotiation. And that is also how shooting the house became. Um, you don't see it a huge amount, but the, you know there were some conflicts in terms of how I wanted to shoot a room and how Dirk wanted me to shoot the room. Um, ha, you know how it impacted on people's lived experience. Like, when Sharp comes through, he's like still washing a glass, I think, because he's, you know, it's like first thing in the morning and he's washing up and we're there setting up our cameras and stuff. Something else that was integral was that the house is generally kept really dim. Um, and LA, being the way it is, the sun is incredibly bright and hot outside, and you get this sense that it's always trying to push its way in through the windows and kind of enclose the space, and it starts to feel quite claustrophobic at times. Um, and so I wanted to really play with that sense of um, a very intense interior, um, this intense sense of a community like shutting themselves away, potentially, or um, the, the, the kind of quest for self-preservation being something about having this intense exterior encroaching, but you're, you're kind of holding the walls back in a way. Um, you don't see the exterior of the house until the iPhone footage. So the bit we just saw where the, the frame cuts in slightly is stuff where I'm filming on my phone. And um, uh, Something that typically comes up a lot when I talk about the film is that I end up talking about the two sections. I'm like, the good footage of the house that's like filmic and documentary and blah, blah, blah. And then the, the less legitimate footage, which is this theatrical, vaguer bit of um, theater or something. But actually, there's this other register of the iPhone, which is kind of the downtime or the bits in between shooting at the house. Um, 
the bits I think where you get more of a sense of the progression of time and the amount that I was just hanging out there. Um, and and that's, that's the moment where I think you, like, the stature of the house wobbles somewhat. Um, you see, you see the kind of fluidity a bit more of how the spaces get used and um, the social interactions, and you get just a bit of a glimpse of what's going on outside or around the house. Um, in terms of it being a, a sort of narrative single playthrough or a looping film, um, you know, me personally, I'm interested in making video for galleries, um, and I've always and I, and I use galleries in a broad sense of the word, maybe by which I mean anything but cinemas, I don't know. But um, that, like for me at least, and maybe this is sort of coming out of the scene in London that I was coming through, like Lux, um, the associate artist program at Lux. There's something important to me about, about putting forth that as a form video in the gallery and what does it do and how is that distinct from cinema or theater. Um, and yeah, I totally, I was, you know, I was telling John, I went into it saying, okay, this is gonna be a looping film. Um, inevitably, like, film or video is not a very flexible form. Um, and so, this sort of, like, three-act narrative kind of encroaches, um, which I don't know if I have anything intelligent to say about that. I'm like, oh, it's just shit happens, you know? It, it, that's how it worked the best. Um, <coughs> mm. And how do you think about that one other element of film, the kind of archival film that you've been digitizing? Right, there? okay, so there is, yeah, there's other forms four. in there. <laughs> yeah, four forms. Yeah, you see, later on, you see this, this VHS footage that's all like this, that starts to come in. Um, Something I was doing a lot when I was hanging around and, and hanging around at the foundation, um, everybody's labor gets folded back in. You know, it's like if you hang around the house for long enough, someone inevitably gives you a job to do. Um, and uh, there were just like tubs and tubs of old Super 8 and 16 mil and VHS tapes and cassette tapes of board meetings that go back to the 90s, you know. Um, they have a lot of stuff, like they, Dirk does not throw anything away. And um, I think because I was there filming, there was this sense of like, can, you know, can you do something with all of this? Um, the bit in the iPhone footage, you see a Super 8 projector projecting this like porno. Um, and that was at a party we had where I sort of elected to nominate some, uh, to elected myself to project some of this porn in the garden because we didn't even know what was on half the reels. But the VHS footage you see um, is a tape that I digitized at the house. Um, the music that you hear in the dance sequence is, is from a porn film that I digitized at the foundation. Um, Dirk and the others that run the foundation are in, like incredibly generous and in part, I sort of identify their desire as just being about getting stuff out into the world um, and wanting Tom's work, but also just the work in the collection in general to circulate as much as possible. Um, maybe while maintaining their own culture. I mean, that's the, maybe right. the, that's, <clears throat> the conundrum here because it is about, I mean, 
yeah, Finland produced a series of stamps of yeah. Tom of Finland's work, not the most kind of graphic. So that's kind of a, you know, it's the work of the Tom of Finland Foundation. At the same yeah. time, it's really this kind of what you've described to us as a kind of a dying community in a way. There yeah. are people coming, but still most of the people there are like aging. There yeah, are no definitely. kind of new kind of leather gays coming, seeking out Tom of Finland Foundation as the kind of the, the place where they want to express their, yeah, you know, desires yeah. and... Yeah, so, I mean, slightly tangentially, there's, there's a bit in the book where I talk to Sharp mm -hmm. and say, you know, he's talking about this desire for their culture to just be seen as normal. And I'm like, well, if it's seen as normal, does the house stop existing? And, and he gets a little bit like, mm, uh, no, we'll always need these spaces. Mm -hmm. But that tension is mm -hmm. present, I, I think, probably in, in most of the works that I've mm -hmm. made, that tension. But the, so the VHS tape, Dirk was, you know, the others, they're really like, if you find something useful, use it. Um, and this tape, I mean, I've barely edited it at all. It's kind of exactly how I saw it. And the way that we were digitizing VHS tapes, you have to watch them in real time. Um, you know, you play it and it transcodes. So I'm sat watching it and um, it's, it's from a party they used to throw in the early 90s called Tom's Bar. But it was kind of incredible to see this, this moment of like, so much energy and so many people being drawn to um, that culture, knowing that it was around the time that Tom died, um, which isn't important for you guys to know necessarily, but it has a, I think it, it imbues an energy into the tape. I think also recognizing that, like, we can probably bet that a large percentage of those men died from AIDS thereafter. Um, and you see Dirk, as his younger, you know, when he was younger. But also the camera is constantly kind of like zooming into people's faces, like it's trying to pick people out of the crowd. Um, and that was just, when I was digitizing the tape, I was just sort of, I don't know, really compelled by it for all of, you know, for all of those reasons. Um, yeah, and it, and it kind of, I don't know, it, I feel like it sort of bubbles up in the film. Um, I hope not in a moralizing way, like not in a sense of like, look what a community, look, look how this used to be an active community and it's not anymore. But I think there's, for me, it's really imbued with grief. The whole work is imbued with grief and there's a, there's a grief to the house and to um, people that died and, you know, alternative lives that are, that are established for, for violent reasons and the grief of gender and the pain of gender and, those, I don't know, there's this sort of like subtext, I think, going on. Are there other questions from anybody else? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Yeah, I mean, yeah, they, I mean, they, they, you know, the work circulates in the art world. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, formerly they weren't, but now they're rep Tom is represented by a number of galleries. Certain things are purchasable and that sort of thing. They have coffee table books. They also have badges and postcards and postage stamps and stuff like Bed that. Sheets. Bed sheets. I have some of the pillowcases. Um, loads of stuff like that. I mean, in some ways, I'm again, I'm like not interested in moralizing about that or even necessarily um, condemning it or anything. I mean, in some ways, my response is like, yeah, like, I don't know, marginalized people end up having to do a song and dance for capitalism to sustain yourself, and inevitably that's monetizing your identity in some way, or, um, I don't know, like, the only way of, the only way for the foundation to survive is to do that stuff. Um, and it's also in America. It's also is, in America, yeah. Which is kind of like, yeah, it's not. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's not interesting to me to say whether that's a good or bad thing for the foundation to do. Um, I, I, yeah, I think it's sort of, it is what it is in some ways. Um, mm, but yeah, I mean, it's sort of the reality of it, I guess. Anyway, we have we have so much time to talk to you. Anyway, on the, I feel like I want to ask you too many questions, but it is kind of interesting. You said you've never kind of made your own identity or life as the kind of the subject of your work, and I think that's true. I've never really, mm -hmm. but you've always been present in your work, which mm -hmm. is kind of an interesting thing of like to not talk about objectivity of saying I'm doc, you know, I'm a documentary filmmaker, mm -hmm. but always kind of insisting on, you know, like this is participatory film, participatory um, film work in the sense that you're, you're, it's obviously coming from you and your kind of body is present with the way it's shot and yeah, the camera. Yeah. At the same time, it's not about you specifically. And I think that's kind of really, it's a really, it's a, it's a difficult balance, I think, always to kind of what, you know, where, where do you draw the line and how much kind of of your persona and your kind of specific interests kind of become mm -hmm, the work mm -hmm. and how much are you kind of carrying and I remember when you just arrived um, a week ago you said you got a question from a journalist saying like how do you like you know this kind of glib question about how straight people will view your work and mm -hmm, you're like mm -hmm. I'm not interested in how straight people see my work yeah, in a way yeah. so there's this kind of I guess push and pull of you being in a predominant you know showing in a straight culture context but you're always kind of grounded in other Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that kind of, you know, that oscillation, I guess, between you and kind of other questions, bigger picture you're interested in, and how you're kind of occupying these different yeah, yeah, yeah. spaces and worlds, and how that hopefully productive kind of push and pull, but how it's always a kind of a, you know, and the person you work with also on the film is also queer, so it's kind of like, you see, your dialogues was probably mm -hmm, different mm -hmm. than the kind of dialogues we're having but how that's kind of always I guess that's if you not identify with a mainstream culture in a way you're always kind of on the outside and you're yeah. always kind of but I guess the trick is to find ways of engaging on your own terms but at the same time kind of not losing sight of what you're mm -hmm. you know 
Interesting. Yeah, and that's like a constant. Oh, it's cheap. Like I was going to say it's a constant learning process. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's something that has always been present in the work and is always like kind of grappled with. And I don't know if there's ever the idealized version. I mean, I think it's astounding the minute that you say you make collaborative or participative work, people expect it to uphold perfect morals or perfect kind of conditions. We're being inclusive of everyone in a way. Like yeah. Everybody should be able to engage on equal terms. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think in some ways I used to try to evacuate a lot of complex, a lot of those complexities out of my work. Like, I was interested in video because of this idea that it offered a potential for non-hierarchical art production, and would go to great lengths to try to find these forms of of, of non-hierarchical working. Um, and, you know, and, and sort of, yeah, more of these sort of like pushing away type strategies or sort of being really like, we're going we're gonna to start our own thing over here, we're gonna, you know, and we're not going to subscribe to that model and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I think as, 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 as I've got deeper into my own work, it's become more and more about like, yes, there's hierarchy, yes, there are power imbalances, yes, this is complicated. Like, I'm not interested in just going like, oh, well, we're all implicated, so let's just deal, let's just get on with it. But I'm interested in being like, yes, we're all implicated, like, what now? Like, what, where, what, how? I've become less and less interested in going, this is a rarefied space where power doesn't affect us, or um, here's how we're going to make art and not be tainted by you guys over there or something. But it's like a constant juggling act, and I think a lot of the kind of people who I'm interested in historically or like whose work I look to kind of have this complicated relationship to being present in their own work but maybe somewhat removed or it being a strategy. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about like Yvonne Rayner, for instance, always in her own work, but it's always in a complex manner. Um, I'm thinking about like the Native Agent series that Semiotex published and Chris Krauss edited. You have the sort of reassertion of the feminist eye, but that eye is doing something. It's not a kind of passive position. Um, or even like the introduction to Testo Junkie, um, the Paul Preciado book, where in the introduction he's saying, I, I'll write about my tears and when I cry, but I'll only talk about when I cry as it in relation to biopolitics and terrorism and warfare and pharmaceutical production. And this reassertion that the moments where he might talk about what's personal is because there is a, a, a sort of radical potential in identifying it. I always think about like how a lot of people I know recently have got really um, interested in being really explicit about when they cry or like what makes them cry. A lot of people I know will be like, that made me cry, or like I cried, or you know. And yeah, I don't know, there's something, there's something in that about this like reassertion of affect and this real sort of like, I am crying. <laughs> and, and in my head I'm like, yeah, we're all fucking crying, of course we are, because it's, so, you know, that's the moment we're living in. Um, and so maybe, uh, I don't know, like putting myself into the work in a way that I haven't done before is, I'm really thinking off the top of my head here, but maybe is like a, a, a is sort of tied into that somehow. Um, you know, I'm like, the, the, the line in the film, like, oh, don't worry, you'll grow into it, you'll become a man, it's like, 
for me, that's like the real kick in the gut of the film. That's a really personal, like, violent thing that someone actually said to me. And to build it into the work, I'm, a, I'm not putting in. I'm not putting it into the work because it upset me, and I need catharsis. But it has a, it has a weight and a value and a purchase to being in the work at that point. Um, yet it is biographical. Yeah. Thank you, Patrick, and thanks everyone for joining us. Yeah, thanks for coming.